0: Dr. Matthew Fasciani is a postdoctoral researcher at Vanderbilt University in the Medicine, Health, and Society departments. His research interests include LGBTQ health, social networks, political polarization, and misinformation. So we discuss science communication and how to find ways to make complicated science easier to understand, which is particularly relevant because of the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. So we need to be sure we can effectively communicate how it works and any potential risks. We even get into how to effectively conceptualize and communicate risk itself. I fumbled during the interview to think of a quote from Neil deGrasse Tyson, which is, The good thing about science is that it's true whether or not you believe in it. But to Dr. Fasciani's point... Even science is not without politics. So we discuss this and how, because of politics, the traditional anti-vaxxer isn't the same as the SARS-CoV-2 anti-vaxxer. Dr. Fasiani received a BA in psychology from Westminster College in Massachusetts and a PhD in sociology from the University of South Carolina. Dr. Fasiani's writing and research has appeared in The Conversation, Snopes, Salon, Mother Jones, and other outlets. Dr. Fasiani has also given talks about his research to audiences around the country and has provided scientific testimony to policymakers. Find com and look for his podcast, The Social Science Hour.
1: Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block.
0: Contract Diagnostics is a firm 100% dedicated to physician contract reviews. They provide a service that all physician families will need at least one time in their careers, most likely a few additional times as well. I love this company as they've helped over 10,000 physicians understand not only what they are signing, but what risks they are taking for their family. All contracts are reviewed by an in-house attorney and presented in a simplified way back to you. Using custom documentation, compensation data, and times outside normal business hours, they make it easy for you. All packages are flat priced, so you know what you'll be paying for up front. Residents and fellows can even make interest-free payments over time. So look them up at drpodcastnetwork.com slash contractdiagnostics or call 888-574-5526. That's 888-574-5526. Dr. Matthew Fasciani, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Brad. It's great to be here. So how do we combat misinformation with information when misinformation is often so much more appealing, certain, easier to understand? So like, how do we convince people to eat broccoli instead of a Big
2: Mac? Yeah, it's a great question. So you're definitely right that misinformation is certainly a lot more appealing and, it's often designed that way. So people use it to share uh, all sorts of theories that might uh, support a particular group that they find it's interesting, if it supports their group and attacks a group they don't like, or if it's just more evoking more emotion. Um, A lot of misinformation just spreads very rapidly compared to more nuanced, complicated, technical information. So it's always going to be an uphill battle. So I guess that's my first thing is like, yeah, there's definitely a challenge there. And the good news is there are some techniques to try to break through that. And I think one way is to just think about how we communicate our messages. So even though science is very technical, you can be really creative in how you talk about your research or the types of research you want to talk and share with your audience. So I think whenever we think about different science communicators who are really creative and engaging and can break down a message with a short video or with music and get a lot of people really engaged with it, that's certainly one way that we can kind of compete is trying to use those creative energies in a way that engages uh, the audience more broadly.
0: So we shouldn't focus on simplification. We should focus on making it fun. One of the outcomes might be that you're simplifying it maybe a little more than you want to. But at the same time, the goal is not simplification. The goal is making it fun, making it enjoyable.
2: Right. Absolutely. I don't think you have to sacrifice accuracy whenever you're doing good science communication. Uh, you're right, you, you, there probably will be some simplification, especially if you're comparing it to like a, a journal article or something like that, but you can definitely avoid being sensationalist or inaccurate. And instead, try to, like you say, make it fun. And I think there's some really great examples of that. Uh, I know on Twitter, Raven Baxter, also known as Raven, the science maven, uh, she does some really great content as far as making videos and really engaging tweets that talks all about science. Uh, Emily Calandrelli is another really great example of someone who I follow on Twitter who is able to break down these science concepts in a way that are really engaging and fun and get people to click on them. So those are just a couple of examples off the top of my head, but I think that is one thing that can be considered. And even though we don't get training as scientists or physicians, uh, I mean, I can't speak for physicians, but you alluded earlier that a lot of physicians don't necessarily get a lot of science communication training, I think that Even though are. that's what we do all
0: day, <laughs> right? Like every single yeah. every single patient encounter is, is is science communication. So it just seems this is the whole idea behind the podcast, right? All the stuff we should have been learning, but but weren't. So, but but I think t- to your point, um, with specifically with the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, mm-hmm. trying to have like a, a spiel that makes the technology, whether you're talking about, right right now, we just have the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, but now we're talking about um, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson. So you might end up ultimately talking about a bunch of different technologies, but Mm -hmm. try to make it in a way that's maybe not even fun, but just like a little warm and fuzzier, you know, when when you're describing how it works. Like, imagine that your cell is a X and imagine that the mRNA is a Y, you know, like you can kind of use... Um I guess anthropomorphization or, or something like that, right?
2: yeah, analogies and examples are are excellent for breaking down technical scientific stuff and that that's not sacrificing accuracy. It's just another way to convey the message. So that's something that I think scientists can do a better job of but just trying to think of the perspective of the audience uh, and that's a common theme is really trying to think about where your audience is coming from and what they would, what would resonate with them and what would stick with them if they're not experts in the field. So really just trying to do some perspective taking and think about what they would find interesting and what they would be able to process. And a lot of that involves, you know, trying to make it engaging, but especially avoiding jargon and avoiding these technical terms and language that can turn people off. I mean, that's one of the most simple, uh, quick ways to try to get people more engaged is to just use language that's more accessible. All
0: right. All right. Um, I think some of the time when we are speaking about some of these bigger ideas and we're having trouble communicating, we're we're having trouble communicating because of the uncertainty, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like how, how do you communicate a, an idea like uncertainty without making it look like you just don't know what you're talking about?
2: Yeah, that's another great question. Uh, I mean, uncertainty is part of the scientific process, right? So there's always going to be some inherent uncertainty whenever we're doing research. And unfortunately, that can be exploited sometimes for political reasons. But the fact is, there's always going to be some uncertainty. And I think there's a couple ways that we can try to really address that. So one is to focus on what the scientific process entails, because if you're not a scientist and you're not familiar with scientific research, a lot of times you might not even know what experimental design really looks like, what that whole research cycle deals with. So I wish there was a a more focus on methods and kind of like a methods science communication of what it means to actually do an experiment and how many times things don't work out and how basically science is a process of gaining knowledge and gaining cumulative knowledge that builds on each other. So trying to really express what the the method is like first, I think is very helpful. And Also, trying to use different examples of how we've progressed in our knowledge. So, when we talk about uncertainty, it can be kind of tricky to wrap our head around. And humans are generally not great about thinking about uncertainty or statistics. Uh, This is something we (laughs) we tend to struggle with a bit. So, if we can try to, again, use analogies instead of numbers or technical analysis, that can be helpful. So, for example, uh, thinking about how our knowledge about smoking, for example, has increased over the years. And there was one point where we were didn't really know a lot about it and how it impacted our health. And then over years of scientific research, we're now pretty certain that smoking is bad for you. So trying to give kind of concrete examples of how science has, builds over time and how that uncertainty is actually a good thing. Because it means we're building off of previous knowledge and trying to figure out what's right.
0: Yeah, I think the smoking example. I at this point it's just so irrefutable that if the mm-hmm. if the patient says, you know, could this kill me? I, I think most physicians wouldn't say, well, you know, probably they go, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yes, ab- just stop, just you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're not going to hem and haul. Yet about most things, we we have to hem and haul, right? We can't really. Right say, say, you know, could, could I die during the surgery? The answer is, well, probably not. And I wouldn't offer it to you. I thought this was even a remote possibility, but yeah, it's possible. Oh man, I'm not going to do it then. You know, like, yeah, but you could have died in the car driving here. It's right. It's, it's hard to, to really have those, those discussions. I, I still struggle with it after, you know, being in some medicine in some form for almost 20 years. So, you know, before you were talking about how, um, you know, how to, how to make some of these big ideas and complex ideas more appealing, mm-hmm. do you have any examples of something that you've explained to people that was a somewhat complicated idea that you found a way to make it more palatable?
2: Yeah, so, so I'm a sociologist, and a lot of the, the things that I study, thankfully, I think are more intuitive as opposed to some of the other sciences that can be overly technical. And that's a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, so, this, so one of the good things is it kind of gets a, a good starting point that people know what groups are or identities are, for example. But then it also means that I have to be careful that uh, those kind of prior beliefs that some other person might have, um, if they're incorrect, <laughs> then uh, that's an added added barrier so as far as something that i've done yeah but you had you had
0: publications in human brain mapping <laughs> and quantitative methods in psychology right That's yeah, just yeah. The, the journal titles tells me there have got to be some complicated ideas in there but that yeah or you, you you pivoted into into this field but mm-hmm. nonetheless right at some point you had to communicate those ideas.
2: Yeah, no, that's, that's, I was, I was just thinking of that. So yeah, I did start out in neuroscience and specifically quantitative neuroscience and yeah, I guess, so this, the way I, I described my research back then was I was doing fMRI research and we had people go into the, the brain scanner And I would just kind of describe in very straightforward terms, kind of what we're like my research, the technical stuff was called multi-voxel pattern analysis. And, you know, if I said that to anyone, they're just they're just shut down. They'd be like, what does that even mean? And instead of saying those words, I could just say, you know, I, I looked at the types of techniques that help us understand how to better study the brain. And whenever we would do this we would have people go into the the scanner look at their brain activity in real time and try to predict from their brain activity what kind of pictures or sounds they were looking at or listening to so instead of going through all the technical stuff of like the the statistical analysis that was really kind of the heart of the research i was doing i would just you know get right to the point of what what was i doing with my my studies what were the people doing? Uh, the research subjects actually doing, and what were the ultimate the goals? So, like, what are the applications of this? And the applications was if we're able to understand how these brain regions work and uh, decode what uh, regions were active in certain certain processes. A lot of the, the application was actually for. Um, a uh, computer interface and like dealing with like people who didn't have uh, if they were actually like in a coma and trying to detect brain activity and stuff like that. So, trying to give examples in that area too. So, if that answers your question, I kind of went off on a, a, a tangent of my my old research that I haven't thought about in a in a while. But um, well, and also research
0: that you did before, you were really. Getting into science communication, so you had to integrate <laughs> yeah. your past life into your uh, your current life. No, no, but that 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 makes a lot of sense. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think one of the things that we're going to be facing with the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, and this gets back to the uncertainty that we were talking about, is mm-hmm. is is discussing risk. Right. Right. So. You know, and you were talking about humans don't do well with uncertainty in statistics. I I think that gets down to humans don't do well with numbers. Like, I heard Mm. somewhere that we can't conceptualize anything greater than the number two. It's just Mm. zero, one, two, and then more than two. So, like, you know, when we start talking about, well, your risk of having this complication is one in 300,000, but your risk of dying from... Covid, given your age, is one in two thousand. So, you know, clearly, even though there is risk to this vaccine, there is a greater. So, but when we talk about that, it's it's you, you just can't talk about the statistics. Yeah, right? so I think. So then, yeah. what do we what do we do? What do we do?
2: Yeah, it, it, it's a tough it's a tough thing because we have this these data, uh, you know, in the literature, all these these statistics of like. Uh, get sick or die, for example, with COVID, and just throwing numbers at people, one in several thousand, I mean, that's really hard to conceptualize. So again, I think using examples could be useful. So if in, instead of saying, uh, so it depends on the statistic, but you could say like you're as likely to die as you are as likely to get in a car wreck or something like that, or you're as likely to get in you know, an airplane crash. So something that we know this is, more or less common gives us some kind of grounding as opposed to just saying one in 100,000 or something like that. So that could be one way that could help.
0: That's really interesting. I mean, you could, we could just Google, obviously, got to vet the source, something like that. You know, if, mm-hmm. if a patient is saying, well, I'm worried about having this complication. And then you could say, well, you know, apparently that's just as likely as getting struck by lightning. So there you go. Right. And yeah. then we can, we can run with that i think that yeah i think giving them an example of of something they can relate to not that you can relate to get struck by lightning but like they recognize <laughs> that that is yeah. something that is extraordinarily rare where they don't realize that one in three hundred thousand also is extraordinarily rare so you know great okay great wow that's that's super helpful so another just putting it in plain language in a way that they can mm. relate to great Um, uh, any
2: other ways that you think we might be able to help people conceptualize risk? Another thing that I was thinking about, this isn't necessarily risk, but I think just trying to be honest with, uh, how much we know about something. So one thing that can backfire is if we kind of beat around the bush a little bit and don't give people direct answers. So if this is regarding medicine or just any sort of public health thing, um, it can be a problem because people are pretty good at knowing if um, someone's not being direct with them or not. So sometimes it can be better to just be honest that we don't know the full extent of something and we don't know uh, even how risky something might be. That's going to be better than trying to uh, be dishonest uh, um, if you're trying to convey something really complicated. Um, As far as, it's kind of like a more macro level process, but whenever we're talking about like public trust in medicine and science, I think one thing that would be helpful is if we're talking about how much we know and how much we don't know and just being upfront about that and just trying to convey where we are in that process again trying to just be really transparent about that uncertainty.
0: Yeah, and I think comparing what we know specifically with this vaccine, you can s- compare what we know about what we don't know about the vaccine, right? What are the long-term possible outcomes? Mm-hmm. To, well, we don't know. But yeah. we do know that, you know, long-term outcomes of of other vaccines have really reared their heads within the first couple of months of of them being out To the public. So, um, or compare it to what we know about the disease, right? Well, we know some of the long term side effects of getting COVID from SARS CoV 2 are permanent loss of sense of smell, you know, these patients with compromised cardiac function or pulmonary function or death. So, these are the things we know. So, you can compare what we don't know about the vaccine
2: to what we do know about the disease. Right. I think that, that's great. And that, that's, that's very direct and clear. And I think that's that's the way to go about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think being, you're right. I mean, that, that's, as physicians, I think, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but there's never going to be a point at which you're going to be dishonest with a patient, right? Like that's just mm-hmm. not, that we don't even consider that as being an option. Not that we hold ourselves to, a, to a, like a higher standard than other people. I think many of us think that we do, but Right. We're professionals just like other professionals. So that's not really an option. So this is that's really what we're looking for today is what what are our options, what are some tools to have in our toolbox, some arrows in our quiver when we're having these discussions. So you spoke earlier about the distinction between general anti-vaxxers and COVID-specific anti-vaxxers. That there's mm-hmm. there's a difference between the two. I it's not anything that I've encountered yet. That being said, I'm, you know, aside from what I read on social media, I'm on, I'm in my little bubble on Long Island. So, you know, I, I haven't, I haven't really encountered that distinction. Can you talk about that?
2: Sure. Yeah. And this is something that we're still studying and still trying to uh, conceptualize to express my own uncertainty. But as far as we know right now, and as far as what I've read. There are clear distinctions between general anti-vaxxers and COVID anti-vaxxers. And one big one is that the COVID-19 anti-vaxxers, a lot of this does deal with political ideology. And even not even just with vaccinations, but the, the anti-maskers too. And I think that kind of, there are a group of people that are politically motivated to be extra skeptical of COVID because of their politics. And that's not necessarily true with a lot of general anti-vaxxers. General anti-vaxxers can actually span across political ideology. And there's not as this clear-cut kind of mechanism of we can see, well, this political group is more skeptical about the pandemic, and then that's going to impact their attitudes and behaviors. So I think that's something important to note. When we think about anti-vaxxers, covid is kind of have this this special subgroup that we we see identified
0: that's interesting that's interesting um also that makes sense because of where i am geographically right i'm in a i'm in an area that's pretty left and so we're not seeing the people that were you know we're told that they don't need to wear masks they're they're understanding is that masks don't do anything. And so therefore, and, and that the virus is really, it's not even real. We're seeing that. We're seeing that in our ICUs. We're seeing people being admitted that are just not, they they just can't, uh, the cognitive dissonance of believing that it's a, of, of, of believing that it's a hoax and then finding out that you actually have the hoax is just too much for a lot of people. Um, yeah. So how do we, how do we grapple with that? right like if we're if yeah. we're if we're in, having an encounter with a patient or let's say we're on social media or we're giving a talk or some type of public engagement and we're getting pushback from that specific ideological group how how do we grapple with that how do we counter that
2: yeah it's a great question and this is something that i've been really interested in the past couple of years as far as trying to persuade someone who is adhering to uh, a strongly held identity. And that's really what a lot of this comes down to is emotions. So I think there's a few different steps. If you're having like a one-on-one conversation with someone who's, let's say they're anti-mask or they're anti-vaccine, and we know it's probably politically driven, I think there's a few different things. The, The first one is to really take a step back and listen and listen with empathy because there's tons of research showing that if you make someone defensive, they're just going to shut down and you have really no chance of reaching them. So before we even kind of start really engaging and sharing our own information perspective, we really need to build trust and make sure that the other person feels heard and just express themselves because once they can do that, then we can start moving from there and, and, and build a connection with the person. Um, so if you're connecting with this person and, and listening to them, then we can start to try and uh, also relate to them too. So depending on if this person is a friend or an acquaintance, um, it might change how you approach it. But whenever we're relating to the person, there's a lot of research showing that Having a, expressing a common identity also builds trust. So if you're both parents, for example, you can say, well, you know, this is, I care about, um, uh, let's, let's for vaccination, like, you know, taking care of my kids, or um, you can talk yeah, about, you wanna keep
0: your kids safe. Yeah, I've heard, yeah. I've heard other, um, in pediatric circles, people talking about that. You start with this common ground is, I'm your pediatrician, you're their parent, we both wanna keep them safe, right? Right. And you, yeah. you know, you you identify this common goal. You speak from a common ground. I think also what you're saying is this is, we're tribal. Human mm-hmm. beings are tribal. And so right. they're identifying themselves as these COVID-specific anti-vaxxers because that's what their tribe has done and they are part of that tribe and therefore they, they adopt this as well. And so one thing that we can do is, you know, because you have multiple tribes, like my tribe. One of them is otolaryngologists. Another one is people from Long Island. Another one is... Jews, so like you know, you can you can reach me by finding one of my tribes and showing me that you're also part of that tribe. Yeah, absolutely. So this, this this tribe, a tribe of people that cares for the well being of children. You and I are both part of that tribe. So find that common ground. That common. So the first thing is listen with empathy. Second thing is find the common ground.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So. After you're you're doing that, and you're you know trying to relate to them and finding these common identities, uh, then you can start actually thinking about how you frame your message. And this kind of gets in more of the nuts and bolts of the information you're sharing. So one technique is uh, called in the literature moral reframing. And it's basically framing your message in a way that's consistent with what the other person cares about, what their morals are. And some examples of this uh, that are not necessarily about vaccines, but let's say you want to try and uh, get someone who's conservative to care more about climate change. Instead of just saying, oh, you should care about climate change because of Uh, you know, it's the right thing to do. (laughs) Um, You can say, well, you know, it creates a lot of jobs. And there's a strong economic argument for clean energy. And just start really looking at that perspective of the economy. That could be a way that that would connect with them. And to bring it to COVID and, and public health behaviors, we can think about like mask wearing, that if more people are wearing masks and if more people are getting vaccinated, then we can start opening up the economy faster. And that's just a fact. And it's something that's going to connect with them that instead of just saying, this is the right thing to do, you can be like, well, if you care about small business owners, if more people are wearing these masks and getting vaccinated, then the people can start opening up their businesses earlier.
0: So it sounds like it should even start with more questions. Mm-hmm. more asking questions than giving answers. So what yeah. what is it you find out where their hesitancy is coming from? You find out what your common ground is. You find out what their goals are. Because it sounds like what you're saying with this, with, with the moral reframing is, you know, what's important to them and what their what their goals are for whatever it is, I guess, in general that you're talking about.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think one way that can help with this uh, as far as something that I've found helpful whenever you're trying to have these conversations, is, is to really come from a place of curiosity. So that helps you not get so emotional, too, because if you're talking about these kinds of uh, issues, sometimes it can be really frustrating if someone's not wearing a mask or doesn't want to get vaccinated, because that does cause real harm, right? Right. But one thing that I found can be helpful is, okay, if I can take a step back and really just put on, like, my sociologist hat, and anyone can just put on their own sociologist hat and try to really understand why this person believes what they believe. Because once you start trying to approach it more analytically and from a place of curiosity, I think it's easier to to conceptualize it as like a puzzle to be solved and just really just think about it in those terms. And then you can get all the information and then you can have a more productive conversation. So I think that that is one technique as far as like something that you can bring to this conversation internally is really trying to come from a place of curiosity and just understand that they have their own experiences that are going to lead them to have these different beliefs. Although I I did have
0: someone tell me the other day, and this isn't a patient, so it's not a privacy violation. That they weren't going to get the vaccine because they heard that Bill Gates said it changes your DNA, huh. and that oh, would no. just—it's it, a—it's an incorrect conflation of multiple conspiracy theories. There's just yeah. so much wrong about it that, that uh, I just—I did, just, I just didn't—I didn't know where to go from there. I don't know if I could—I could solve that puzzle, but uh, yeah, yes. So be be cur- Although I guess to to answer that person's concerns you say well where did you hear that why does that yeah. make you nervous and then you know well what do you know about the disease itself and mm-hmm. you you know ask ask them so give m- more questions than answers
2: yeah yeah and and then some of the questions it's helpful also to think about to make sure that you're not kind of giving them a, a binary response to to have. So, you know, just like, do you agree or not? Like, do you think the vaccine works or not? yeah in- Instead, like, how confident are you in the mechanism? What do you know about the mechanism of why vaccines work? And this is, again, this is backed up by some studies that do show whenever you force people to write out their beliefs... And explain the mechanism behind them, they're less polarized because they kind of have to take a step back and be like, well, what do I actually really believe here? And why do I believe it? So And also it seems in that situation they're a partner.
0: mm -hmm. Right? You're not you're not speaking at them, you're asking them about what they believe. And so they're part of the process.
2: Yeah. And this is all all yeah, all part of trying to connect with them because you know, as much as we might want to throw facts at them. The way to change someone's mind is through emotions and yeah. connection. So,
0: you know, if someone says, well, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know about this vaccine. I don't think I'm going to get it. You know, well, why, how do you think, you know, what's your understanding of how it works? You know, what's your understanding of the disease outcomes? Why, why should someone get vaccinated? Why, you know, are there any, what are some reasons why someone shouldn't get vaccinated? You know, right. Re- really p- trying to pull their, beliefs out of them. And I think something important is just because you don't convince them there on the spot doesn't mean that you have then failed and should stop doing this. I think it's important also that we're we're just, the, the, the victory is that you've nudged them a little bit in the, in the other direction.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I would say is one of the last steps that's maybe the most important is just how you have to, you know, a lot of this requires emotional work and repeating these kinds of conversations. And it's kind of something that happens over time to build those connections. So that's going to take a lot of work, even with someone who you might know a little bit better, but it's also important to to just admit that sometimes we can't change someone's mind. If someone's very convinced and just very strident in their beliefs Sometimes they're not in a mental place where we can reach them, and you need to pick your battles ultimately.
0: Yeah, you had alluded to the fact that some of the COVID anti vaxxers are you know on the far right politically, Mm -hmm. so that comes to it brings us to another question that about just science in general because I thought that science wasn't political. And it seems in this situation, interpretation of its science is aligned with a specific or or, or lack thereof, is, is aligned with a specific political party. So is science political or is science apolitical?
2: So I definitely think that science is political. And... I think this because it's done by humans and it's done within institutions and it's inherently part of our society and connected to our politics. So when we talk about like the scientific method in this really abstract way, I don't think that's necessarily helpful because that scientific method is still done by humans and it's connected to all these human elements. So. Yeah, I think that there's some clear examples of how science is political such as the COVID-19 response where we see conservatives and republicans approaching it very differently and not taking it as seriously and we see, you know, Trump at the beginning very much being not really on board with masks. Uh, At the beginning, it took them a while. to Downplaying it, it,
0: minimizing it,
2: and really all aspects of it, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's when we see like really clear examples of it. But I would even say that there are, it's always built into different institutions and there's different factors in play. Even if you think about just what people are studying. So for example, in 100 years ago uh, or, or longer, there was a while when women were not, In science at all so this just changed what people studied and there wasn't a lot of people studying women's reproductive health for example so then for years you just don't have people really understanding you know what the biology of women for a while just because there's not uh, you know an equal representation in the field and that's just something that you can see as far as how diversity plays a role in, in something like uh you know, even biological science—just kind of what people are studying and how that impacts what knowledge is is created. So, I, I can't really think of the quote right now. I was trying to trying to look
0: it up by Neil deGrasse Tyson. You mm-hmm. know, where he says that uh, something along the lines of, you know, science will ultimately find the answer. It doesn't really care what your what your beliefs are. It's you know, the facts are the facts. But your pushback on that is those facts are then interpreted by human beings. Who are inherently, who inherently have biases right. and heuristics that they use to interpret those facts. So it's not like the science occurs in a vacuum.
2: Right. And that's why I brought the example of of gender and, and biological science, because that's tr- That's the people who are investigating the facts at the very beginning. So like what questions are asked are determined by our own perspectives and experiences and biases. So even the knowledge creation of what we decide to study is, that's going to be connected to subjectivity. So that's why I think it's always going to be connected to to politics in some way. And it's just, it's inevitable that it's going to run into some political nature, um, something that's connected to politics. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's just not true to say that science is apolitical. So that is that is a strong opinion that I have on it, because I think that once you start really thinking about how science is connected to all these broader institutions, you start to think about funding and where the funding is coming from and why people are studying these questions. And all of a sudden, there isn't this kind of just like pure... Data-driven, knowledge-driven process. It's like how we even begin to ask these questions is based on these political ideas and subjectivity.
0: That sounds like um, Obi Wan Kenobi, <laughs> where he tells Luke, you know, many of the trin- many of the truths that we cling to depend greatly on your point of view. Yeah. So, yeah, know, absolutely, f- fact is fact, but it's fr- in in the eye of the. Uh, in the, in the interpretation of the beholder.
2: Yeah, and I think just being honest about that is important because one vulnerability here is if we start to think that we are completely objective and we're above bias, then we're going to start missing a lot of our own biases.
0: Yeah, you know, one of our previous episodes with, was with uh, Jonathan Howard, who's a, a neurologist and psychologist at NYU who wrote a book on cognitive biases in medicine. And, and one of the common themes... Uh, threads there was everyone thinks that they don't have biases everyone you can see the biases in other people but you can it's really hard to see it in yourself everyone thinks that they're that they're above it Mm -hmm. yeah right before we wrap up is there anything else any other points that you have for our physicians either specifically about the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine and addressing it with our with our patients and with our communities or just General, broad science communication
2: advice. Uh, there is one topic that comes to mind as far as so I talked about how there's uh, there's basically Republicans are more skeptical about the coronavirus and that there's this political angle for mask wearing and and vaccinations. But I think it's also important to think about the the communities that have legitimate reasons for concern, and this is something that like you asked before that uh, I think we might have touched on, but I just want to talk about it a bit more um, as far as people Yeah, from... so our
0: communities, right, right, like the, the, for the African-American community, uh, Native American community, communities that have, uh, con- that have reason for their skepticism, right? They're, they're communities that have been mistreated by the medical uh, and healthcare system in the past, and so now they're skeptical of it with, with good reason. Right. So, so, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm white. So Mm -hmm. I'm trying to convince my my patient who is not white of of why they should trust the vaccine. And they may believe that, you know, the vaccine that they may be getting is different from the one that I'm that 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 I got Mm -hmm. Um, or, or, you know, any any number of things that and this is where. You know, cultural humility. I don't know what I don't know. So, if I'm mm-hmm. if I'm speaking to a patient, who who doesn't have the background that I do, who doesn't look like me, how can I address their concerns and their skepticism?
2: Yeah, yeah, and it's a tough question. And there are some people studying this specifically. Uh, so, one sociologist I know is uh, Dr. Allison Matthews, who does study how physicians can reach Black communities. And one thing that she talks about is how to use the figures that have trust. So, for example, the Black doctors in that community can talk to uh, people that they know and try to connect with them. So that's one one way to do it is to, to have a lot more community engagement. And then... If it's not just doctors, it can be church leaders or different civil rights groups, too. Basically, anyone in the community that is respected, you can have them kind of share the message and amplify the message of doctors. And I think it's important then for people who are white to just try to help amplify these messages. And if you're a physician, you can refer them to these groups of of people who are sharing this information with their communities. So just to understand that there are people doing the work that we can help out, and that you know, if we feel like we can't reach someone because of these different uh, because we don't belong to the same group and is creating a, a bit of a barrier, we can direct them to people who are doing this work, trying to reach the groups uh, that they belong to themselves.
0: So it sounds like in this situation, make sure you're not pushing too hard because mm-hmm. again, cultural humility, you don't know what you don't know about this person and, and their background and their beliefs. But at the same time, you can, you can still influence them because you're likely, there's a reason that they came to see you because right. you're their physician and they trust you. But in this specific issue, you can also you know, refer them to other community leaders and in, in what community
2: they're from. Yeah. Yeah. So, absolutely. I mean, humility is definitely a great thing to have. So, I'm also thinking about kind of like the the more macro approaches too. But if you're doing an, an individual interaction, it may be helpful to think about how you can uh, mention or direct uh, the the person to some of these other resources if they might feel more comfortable.
0: Fantastic. A lot of a lot of things that we're going to be able to. To take with us into the uh, into the exam room when we're having these discussions, and when we're having the these discussions in our communities, Matthew Facciani, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, we can find you at the Social Science Hour, right? Your podcast, yeah. and then it's F A C C I A N
2: I, Matthew. Uh, dot com, correct? Yep. Yep. You can definitely find me there. And I'm also on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, thankfully, my name is fairly unique. So if you just search those, I'll pop up. Thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This podcast was brought to you by Contract Diagnostics. This is a company that specializes in contract reviews. Specialization is something we can all appreciate here. So again, when you or your family have contract needs, give them a call. They'll help you understand your contract and make sure it lines up with your interests and protects the assets you covet most, your time and family. Find them at doctorpodcastnetworkcom slash Diagnostics, or call 888-574-5526. That's 888-574-5526. That
1: was Dr. Bradley Block at The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.